0: My name is Rob Ackinclose, and this is the Scene Podcast, where we seek knowledge—the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge, so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Scene Magazine. Our first issue is available now for shipping, and anyone listening to this episode can use the code PODCAST and receive 15% off our first issue. Today, I am joined by none other than Dr. Len Nasefer. Dr. Len Nasefer, Ph.D., is CEO and founder of Natives Outdoors, a native-owned athletic and creative collective. He holds a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a doctorate in engineering and public policy from Carnegie Mellon University. Previous to this role, Len has worked for the U.S. Department of Energy and, most recently, the University of Arizona. His storytelling work melds the intersection of sport, environmental advocacy, and indigenous people, and has been featured in the Alpinist, National Geographic, and over 50 film festivals globally. I hope you all enjoy this conversation between myself and Len Nasefer. As a quick note, at some point the audio does completely cut out, and that was due to a recording issue, but I'll make sure I get Len on here for a proper second episode where we can continue the train of thought we were on. But I hope you all Enjoy.
1: Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all.
0: Len, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm
1: excited to be here.
0: I start every single podcast by asking the same question, which is what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning?
1: Mm. I, lately, um, I would say it's seasonally. I've been seeing if there's snow on the mountain down here in Tucson. It's kind of a yeah, just a really
0: magical thing to see snow in the desert. So I've been thinking about that a lot, a lot lately. And for people that may not connect the two, so Mount Mount Lemon is what you're referring to in Tucson, yeah.
1: Yeah, Mount Lemon in Tucson. It's the big peak down
0: here. And so having only been to Tucson myself in the summertime, um, how much snow actually do you guys get in the wintertime down there? Up on the up on the top?
1: I mean, this year, I think we're getting close to like 80 or 90 inches, but I think historically wow. it's been around 30. The peak is a little over 9,000 feet, and so we get a lot of storms off the Pacific and the Sea of Cortez, and yeah, it's it's pretty rare. It's the southern musky in, in <laughs> North America, so it's pretty, it's a, yeah. definitely a treat.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, and I actually went to school up in Prescott, um, so oh, yeah. uh, the having, having snowball up in Flagstaff. I remember there was one year that it got the most snow of anywhere in the U S including Alaska, but I was like so busy with school that I couldn't go up there. But I think it always surprised me when I told people back at home or my friends in Colorado or Wyoming, I was like, yeah, Arizona, great place to ski. And they're like, you're crazy, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a crazy thing down here. I've been spending a lot of time on lemon and you know, I mean, you only have like a thousand feet of, of vertical. So it's, it's kind of a, a bizarre thing that you can see Mexico from the top of the lift and um awesome. but you know, but from you know these sky islands down here in this part of the world are really special, just the ecosystems that they um take care of and create are just yeah a sight to behold, so yeah, that's cool. Prescott's an awesome place too.
0: it is a fun place yeah um so. You seem to spend a lot of time on Mount Lemon in general. Walk me through as as far as I'm aware, I know that like it's one of those very interesting places around the world where you have an area of ecology that is very unlike what surrounds it because mm-hmm. of the sudden elevation compared to the land that surrounds it, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there the, the peaks, you know, the valleys here are like here in Tucson we're a little over two thousand feet and Um, you know, you have these reliefs of seven, 8,000 feet of some of the peaks around here. So they just uh, create their own weather systems and ecosystems. So like Tucson sitting between effectively four rain shadows of these different mountains. And so we get more rain than uh, like Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, Really? I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. we're a desert, you know, a lot of it evaporates and it's a lot warmer here. So, um, but yeah, the desert ecology, I've been living here for about five years and, you know, it's I love the snow, I love the mountains, but you know being here is definitely a special special place to be you know the monsoons that we have every fall and the winter monsoons that we're getting now it's just it's a it's fantastic, so not as much snow as I'd like, but it's you know everything else in around Tucson is incredible
0: Are there certain like species of like fauna or plants that only exist in on Mount Lemon because of this like uh natural zone that's created but compared to what's around it yeah i mean we we have pine trees up there and like dug firs,
1: which are you know not unique but like given that we're 40 50 miles from the mexican border you have these douglas firs that are (laughs) just wild yeah you know just these huge trees up on up on this on this um, mountain but yeah i mean of course you know there's like saguaros which are like Mm -hmm. sort of the iconic cactus and Yep. which are these crazy looking raccoon animals and hmm. yeah it's it's been you know i think the the place has been really inspiring at least in in terms of um yeah i mean just seeing climate change firsthand you know the the of course snow and playing in the snow is fun but it's also a marker of how our world's changing and especially here in tucson we're seeing that in a real way so i, I think that's been an interesting thing yeah especially with the. Uh, changing ecology up there with invasive species yeah. and fires that have happened. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's insightful. It's been a way I've been able to connect with some of our larger changing world and the ecosystems that it, it impacts.
0: And, and so to kind of loop this all together for people that aren't aware of your background uh, and understand why, you know, I'm asking these questions and why this, yeah. these topics are important to you. Um, how would you describe the work you do now to your eight-year-old self?
1: Oh man. Ah, uh, it's a layer. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats, but basically I work on, um, I work on telling stories through outdoor adventure, connecting it to policy, connecting it to climate change and indigenous peoples. So yeah. outdoor sport is, you know, my eight year old self loved. Um, but I've mm-hmm. figured out a way to turn that into, um, uh, storytelling and, and the work that I do now. So i run a company which i think eight-year-old self would probably you know imagine that was a lot easier than it actually is but i run (laughs) films and um do media and content and and sort of a whole breadth of things i like to i like to not just do one thing i like to do multiple things um so that company platform allows me to sort of take on
0: work that is wide and varied and by that company you mean natives outdoors yeah
1: natives outdoors yep awesome Yeah,
0: Um, it's interesting. So I've actually seen your work for a while because of people that I kind of have associated with through the outdoor space. Um, You know, I was introduced to you by a mutual friend, Charles Post, uh, who's a fantastic individual. Um, And I only knew him because of Chris Burkhardt. And I know that Chris has done a lot of work. Uh, I think you've worked with him in the past on a different product or two, or at least are in similar circles of people. But um, I'm curious because you have such a focus on, media and motion and photography but also to focus on like policy and change dynamics and like a, a very difficult landscape especially yeah. policy wise right now yeah. like wh- which came first for you is like the interest in changing a narrative and helping other people or like the interest in telling the story
1: you know i think uh the community i come from was uh, i come from the navajo nation in north northeastern arizona and mm-hmm. um I lived right in the shadow of the fifth and sixth largest coal power plants, uh, somewhere in the top 10, at least, if I remember right. They're
0: massive. Yeah.
1: Massive and coal mines, uranium mines. And so just seeing like the impacts of larger national level policy on my own community had a motivating impact for me to like, think about how things could be different. Um, and I spent a lot of time outside, um, growing up and of course you know there is always this division that i think we see in our economy and like and work that like spending time outside is not something that you can make a living doing but like at least in our in in native communities like we've been living outside and making our living granted through a different economic system Mm -hmm. um for a long time and i i sort of had those two world I inhabited, you know, the play side and the work side. And I went off to school and went to engineering school, got a doctorate, um, you know, was working on energy and environmental policy. And I think one of the things that I saw was just, um, I was publishing more work. I was working more in academic spheres, but I, you know, the needle wasn't really moving on some of these larger issues that impacted my own family and others. And it just felt like I wasn't, there wasn't forward progress being made on the larger systemic side of these issues. Granted, there was, you know, progress being made in my own career and the things that I was doing. I was definitely on that trajectory, but it just didn't feel fulfilling. Um, And I also was challenged by how much time I was spending indoors. And, you Mm. know, much of the work I was doing was behind a computer and like in conferences and, and, and it felt disconnected from the topics that I was concerned about. And I think what resonated in my mind was something that my grandfather had told me, who was a Navajo medicine man, um, was we were out hiking, looking for some plants, and you know he stopped me on the ridge, and he's like, Don't forget this is your first classroom. you're really good at this other classroom, but this is where your learning also happens as well, so don't forget that you need this education as yeah. well. So I went you know through the trajectory, was publishing work in academia, but I always felt unfulfilled and you know, I started Natives Outdoors in large part to increase representation in Native peoples, but also to like have a different lens on storytelling. And that storytelling took me outside. It took me on these, you know, stories about climate change. It's stories about um, changing landscapes, and
0: yeah,
1: and and I saw how many people that was reaching. I saw like how much that was sort of mo- that was moving the lever on these policy discussions at a more grassroots level than my journal papers were and i think the real the real click for me and the transformation where i said uh, actually this is more this is where i can have it, more of an impact was i made a film called welcome to guichage um
0: back in 2018 which i'll uh, link below to anyone that wants to watch it
1: yeah and it was a uh, it was yeah. a film yeah it was a film that we made with the wilderness society and the Gwich'in Steering Committee, but it was about the Gwich'in people's connection to the arctic national right wildlife refuge and the threats to oil and gas development that are still there, um, and that film got I don't know how many views, but it eventually led to a testimony in front of Congress um, about leasing issues in, in the BLM um, BLM lands and you know it was one of those moments where I think where I, I had that disconnect is one of my advice or one of my supervisors that I was at the university working at at the time said, wow, they must have read all of your journal articles that you've written about this particular topic. And I was like, no, actually, they watched the film that I made. Um, and, and I think it was one of those moments where I said, here's an opportunity to democratize knowledge and also make these larger policy discussions approachable or you know interesting. And, and more importantly, using the beautiful landscapes and imagery that these places exist to help move that narrative forward.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's beautiful, and and I and I really love, and thank you for answering my initial question about like whether which one came first, because I think you're right. Some people, especially the people at your university, that were convinced that oh, they must be reading all of the editorial and deep work you be doing. It's like no, it's it's people. People watch the films. People watch the TED talks. People watch the movies. People, unfortunately, there's so many things, and I, I don't think it's necessarily. Like, it's not like they're against it. It's not like they don't want to learn about it. It's just that there's so many things vying for our attention in 2023 mm-hmm. or 2020 or even 2010 that, like, the more efficient way and the better story you can tell, the mm-hmm. better off you're going to be at, at, at changing the narrative, right? Yeah. And that's why storytelling is so powerful.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's the the attention economy. I think that's yeah. always... that's. I mean, we're, we're competing for attention all of the time, and that's mm-hmm. like... um you know, in, in an implied challenge, at least with the work that I've been doing, is just, or it's just like an inherent challenge. It's just uh, that you're competing for people's attention, and you know, some of that is has nothing to do with like the type of media and work that you're putting out. It's like, okay, TikTok mm-hmm. reel, this, this meme, this sort of thing, which has been funny because, you know, at least in. Much of the work that I've been working on and talk about climate change, indigenous peoples, mineral issues around that—it's heavy stuff. And I think there's only so much of that. There's only so much of that information that I can absorb, but more importantly, people can absorb because we're all sort of inundated with, uh, you know, man-made horrors beyond our comprehension, right? So
0: yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely scary because the way I think about it is. You know, people don't want to even read the article anymore. They don't read the book. They will not read the article. I mean, people are even struggling to read tweets these days, and that's limited to, what, 100, you know, 250 characters if you're lucky. Usually 140 yes. or whatever. The, I don't know what Elon changed it to recently, but it's changed. Um, but long story short, like, what I'm saying is that I think your point about an attention economy is so important because people really have so much going on when people say like, I am so overwhelmed, I just can't listen to any of it right now. I understand. Like, I, I don't blame them at all. Right? Like, there are so many people suffering around the world. There are so many problems that need fixing. There are so many things that just don't uh, compute on like a basic human level. Like, the human brain was not evolved to handle like the worst news possible every second of the day. Like, we're just not designed that way you know yeah um, yeah not at all <laughs> but i i do think something you said is important i think that spending time in nature especially mm-hmm. the more natural places that left in the world uh does mm-hmm. really realign us with our initial purpose right or or helps us really figure out like who we are deep down what we need to do right yeah it's a deep it's um,
1: deeply it's deeply grounding for sure deeply grounding
0: yeah yeah absolutely um so i i like i think it was your you said your grandfather who told you to rem- remember that you, your first classroom was the outdoors, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you grew up in, in Navajo Nation proper, right? Or were, you, were you on the – because it's mostly in Arizona, right? It kind of spills over a little bit into – New
1: Mexico and Utah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I lived there from when I was about 12 until 22. But my mom my mom's from there. My dad's from Detroit. But I grew up in Kansas for a big part of my life and okay visit a lot during the summer. But mm-hmm. – um, I lived on the Navajo Nation. I lived in a town called Salee, which is rear, right near Canyon yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. And, you know, I, I like to say it's a little small college town on the Navajo Nation. <laughs> yeah. There's a tribal college that my mom worked at. And so I, 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 I spent a lot of time there. My family had a sheep camp on top of the mountain that I spent a lot of time as a kid. And, mm. you know, I began spending more time out there. And it's, yeah, no, it's just, it's just so quiet and so... Um, yeah, it's not busy. I guess that was the one thing Yeah. That, like moving from there to the city was, you know, definitely overwhelming because of the amount of noise and inundation. And when at the time when I lived on the res, like there wasn't really self-service or, you know, our Internet was dial up that was so slow. So I'd never really used it, which was, yeah. you know,
0: I'm grateful for it. And it definitely made life feel uh, expansive, I guess. So what was that like being 12 years old and going from mostly being in Kansas to mostly being in Northern Arizona? Like that's, those are two different worlds. May as well be different planets, right?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, my dad, my dad's Romanian Scottish and my mom's Navajo. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of split time between both realities, you know, not both cultures, like in Detroit and my life in yeah. Kansas and then on the res. And so it was always, I was always in this place of being a cultural translator because I kind of understood you know I kind of knew enough about each yeah and but you know I think one of the things was just as coming from Kansas was also just how different I was just like the things that I liked the things that I was into as compared to my peers like I liked cars I liked you know and my peers liked trucks I didn't know anything about rodeo Um, you know it was this sort of learning of a different sort of of how to how to fit in in many ways and how to be Navajo. I knew enough about being Navajo that I was really grounded in that, but sort of the other, um, the, I would say the, the elements of rural Western life yeah. that I just no no sense
0: of. Yeah, uh, so. <laughs> so you had, it seems like you spent a lot of time with uh, grandparents who sound like they were immigrants from Europe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Romania and, and Scott, Scott, Scotland. And then you also had grandparents, which I'm assuming, like, spent most of their lives on the on the reservation, yes?
1: Yeah, so my, my dad's, it was second generation on my, on my dad's side, but I knew my great-grandparents on that side as well, so. Awesome. Um, yeah. I, I knew the folks that came over, and yeah, they spoke Romanian, they spoke Scottish, and then my Navajo side of the family, those grandparents didn't speak any English, they just spoke Navajo, so.
0: And so awesome. I'm getting, as that follow-up is, so do you, you speak Navajo? I'm assuming you speak English, obviously, because we're communicating <laughs> English. Uh, do you speak any Romanian or any other languages? I,
1: I speak Spanish, um, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that I learned from going to international high school in New Mexico and was, you know, just yep. really well language education. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like, living here in Tucson, I could definitely use it you know, a lot in Mexico. So proximate, but oh, yeah, that's, sure. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've yet to learn Romanian. I've been thinking about it. But, you know, I want to go and visit Romania and have some language
0: skills. Um, So one of my uh, one of my good friends actually has Romanian ancestry and he speaks French very well. Uh, And he said that if you know French or Spanish, Romanian actually is is not too hard. Um, Oh, that's very similar. It has very similar kind of conjugation routes i mean french conjugation is insane spanish is a bit easier but um yeah i've heard i've heard romanian it's 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 not as big of a jump you know uh, same la- same alphabet which is nice uh <laughs> yeah that's that'd a lot. <laughs> you're not going to learn s- cyrillic or um actually i've always i've always been curious about this so the the navajo language and the it's not an alphabet it's it's like a a, a system of characters or what how how is it described like the, the individual letters that oh, yeah. i i would see on like
1: a yeah i mean it's it's roman characters like we are our, our language like the uh our our linguistic traditions are oral traditionally mm-hmm. so yeah um
0: i think sorry some... what i was asking is yeah. is is like sometimes i would see cuz i spent a lot of time up in navajo nation just exploring the great outdoors yeah. and sometimes i'd see a sign to some kind of natural thing and it would be Written using some Roman letters and some characters I'd never seen before, you know, and I was yeah. unsure like what those are. Are they just like yeah. uh, is it, they're, it they're like, Roman? It's, but
1: it's it's a there's yeah, but there's just a ton of like accents and or high tones and nasal tones and got it glottal stops and all of these other things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, cool. it's it's funny because my mom is fluent in Navajo, but she'd never learned to write, and so like I can. not I learned to write and so I can, you know, she helps me with like the translations and then I can definitely translate
0: it into a proper written Navajo. And it's really funny, <laughs> but, but yeah, but that makes sense because sorry, continue.
1: No, 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 go for it.
0: I was going to say that makes sense because if, from what I understand and know about the Navajo people, um, your traditions are very steeped in oral storytelling and everyone spending oh. time together, Right throughout generations, so there wasn't really a need to have written Navajo. It seems like while your mother was growing up, right?
1: Yeah, I mean the, uh, the the, the Jesuits in like the early 1900s, late 1800s, came and basically put um, Roman characters to our language, effectively. And so that's where the written language came from. But like our our knowledge transmission, um, like the way in which we would down knowledge and stories were through songs and and i remember yeah, there's there's songs and there's also symbology and other things that we use in ceremonial practices but um the 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 process of chanting actually re- like generation to generation reduces and less alterations of um the original message as compared to writing um mm. so i i don't I don't remember the exact study, but I remember seeing that it's like someone it's like an order of magnitude difference how much a story or message will change over four gen four or five generations if it's written versus oral oral being more accurate. Because if you think about singing in a song or chanting, if you don't you know, if you're changing the words, it doesn't really fit the the rhythm of the song. Um yeah.
0: interesting. Never thought yeah,
1: about that so that was yeah, it was always interesting. But yeah, I kind of I grew up in the ceremonial traditions with my grandfather, and that's how I got to kind of see that firsthand.
0: So what traditions that you learned from your family do you still use on, maybe not a daily basis, but at least like a weekly or monthly basis, anything?
1: I think, you know, the one, the one thing that always stuck with me is just the importance of reciprocity, or just having understanding our place within the ecosystem, and that we have impact. And You know, that impact may may be small, but it can be cumulative if you add a lot of folks into that. And I think the other is just more importantly, just the um, importance of just, you know, when we spend time outside, we're taking an experience, maybe not, we're not taking a resource per se, but we're taking an experience and there's a way to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. we're in that sort of interaction or transaction with the natural world. And having that acknowledgement can be, you know, our, our first step to minimizing our impact. So that, that definitely is the one that sticks with me the longest.
0: I, I love that way of thinking. Uh, and to bring up a recent episode of the podcast with Sam Rubin, he introduced, I think, I think you and you and him would really get along and I'm excited to introduce you to um, because he is someone that is comes from an, uh, a kind of a, des, a design, engineering thought background, but he's really a policy person. And so he actually helped introduce in California uh, a law that really helps It helps. It it begins to force corporations and builders and developers, especially, to think about embodied carbon. So the idea that like Mm -hmm. when you get to when a material gets to the job site, more than fifty percent of its carbon impact has already been spent through the transportation, through its manufacturing process, through just pulling it, extracting it out of the earth itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so the big thing now is that understanding that it's 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 one thing to build a building efficiently. It's one thing for the final product to be efficient, but a lot of quote unquote hyper modern efficient buildings actually use materials that are so much of so much of a higher carbon footprint in the process of manufacturing them that it actually makes them no longer you know sustainable to build um yeah but he's also big on that idea of how can we create solutions while also changing policy and with policy changing public narrative to be able to help protect these like last remaining uh you know vestiges of humanity effectively
1: sorry, I cut out there for a second. Oh, good. uh,
0: Yeah, no problem.
1: No, I, uh, the, a lot of my work prior to this is I I worked on life cycle assessment topics, like doing, Mm -hmm. you know, that for energy systems and, you know, the embodied impact of, oh, I mean, even the smallest thing, it's just the cumulative impact is, it's, it's the scale is, is, is unfathomable. Like we can't, really understand supply chains. I mean, the the beauty of supply chains is how interconnected and complex and the complexities of things that we can build, but also so are the impacts, you know, um, on a, every step of the way.
0: Yeah, it's huge. Uh, and sorry for the occasional cutting out here and there. It's uh, I, I think from the recording perspective, we will always be good in terms of people hearing what we're saying. But if anyone listening has any kind of hears any, you know potential Len and I talking over each other, it's not our intention i promise <laughs> um so to someone so i always when people always ask me cuz i consider myself pretty well traveled um like where my happy places are northern arizona mm-hmm. is usually top 5 places i mention um so if if you had to kind of make a guide to uh someone's first time in that region let's just say like northern arizona to four corners to monument valley um like that kind of that that span of of area like where would you tell people to go make sure they go check out first
1: yeah you know i think the san luis valley in south central colorado is you know we have our four sacred peaks um sort of scattered between colorado and new mexico and arizona and i've spent a lot of time around all of those I, i would say those are those are the definitely the top four um you know uh, Blanca Peak, and Navajo in the San Luis Valley is like this 14 that like juts, you know, it's got, I think one of the top 10 prominences of any mountain in, in uh, the United States. So it's this huge mountain 14 um, and then you kind of go west in the San Juans and around Durango and those mountains are just so special. Um, you know, it's an extinct volcano that okay. basically creates this whole chassis mountain range. Um, I definitely spent a lot of time there and, you know, Chaco Canyon, the Cheska mountains, you know, you kind of go from Mm. these Alpine environments to the desert. And it's really just, I think just having those, those extremes and those vistas that you can get from the mountains onto the desert. is just something that I just always, I always think about, you know, in daydreaming, uh, being able to be up there. Um, Yeah. So those are going to be those places.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 Durango is another one of those special places to me. Um, I actually went to school there for a semester at Fort Lewis uh, before okay. I moved to Prescott. And so like that, that road trip bet- through Navajo Nation between Prescott and Durango, I've done quite a few times. Um, and it's fascinating, like the, the, the amount of ecology. I, I would say the, the, the difference in what you see out the window is fascinating, like on that drive. Like it just yeah. it changes so much. Yeah. And I think you know, there are very few places around the world where you have that level of difference.
1: Yeah. Being able to go through the, I mean, especially the Mogollon Rim, um, you know, I think just, just seeing that, that difference from the floor of the, you know, the desert floor of Phoenix and then driving, what is it? A hundred miles or 90 miles up to Flagstaff, you gain like 6,000 feet or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible. What's in the backyard. <laughs> I always, I always think about that, you know, when I go It is, and, and
0: <laughs> I, I think also for doing that drive so many times from Phoenix to Prescott, like there's always a car fire or a truck fire because they overheat going up that hill. Yeah. Um, and it's just always a reminder of like how much elevation gain you are actually gaining in that short amount of time. Um, it's, it's a very fascinating and dangerous road because everyone just goes way too fast on it. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it's,
1: it's really insane.
0: So, but I think that's part of Arizona. Arizona has this little bit of like insanity to it that kind of makes it Arizona, which I like.
1: Yep. It's so true. It's very insane place.
0: (laughs) So, um, going back to natives outdoors, uh, you, I'm sure you've been asked, you know, the founding origin story, plenty of times, uh, you kind of highlighted in this podcast, uh i'm more interested in if there was maybe someone else uh you know maybe someone younger in the navajo nation or another reservation around the world or just someone in their own community uh that wants to uh you know make an impact on a local and then global scale through maybe storytelling or policy like what what advice would you have for them to get started i mean i i would always i mean one of the places
1: that like a piece of advice and place I always try to sit with my own work is my great aunt, one of my remaining great aunts basically said, if you're, you have to be grounded in yourself and like in a good place in yourself before you go out and doing, do other things in the world. And that's always something that you should return to. And that's stuck with me for a long time. Um, and I think especially in doing stories that are on environmental issues or, you know the changing world that we're in now it, it can be disorienting and i think always having that place to return to internally and also physically if that's home is is a really important step to cultivate uh, you know before heading out and doing yeah just going to far off places and places that you know will alter your mental model of the world and whatever. It's it's really important to have that grounding before doing that. And that takes time. Um I think just uh that that's also tied with the idea of just um are there ways in which you can build your self confidence and um capabilities of navigating the world around you and you know, for every person it's different. I took the route of education and policy. For other people it might be art or whatever it may be music. And mm-hmm. um you know, I think just having that um, that ability to feel grounded in that perspective, and I would say the 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 last sort of big piece I would I would say is being willing to share and being willing to accept, share your own story and sh- accept and share others or accept others when they do share it with you, mm-hmm. and um, I I think the uh, the other big part of that is just also being able to just um try to see the world through another person's lens and just putting that on and you know seeing how it works for you and there's things to be learned from from other people's perspectives and and i think that's been one of the pieces that's been um i think grounding in a big way and i think also just for our work has just been really helpful and um you know especially with some of these stories that are around indigenous issues that people you know have no idea about or like don't have any sense of native peoples in this country is you know trying to meet people where they're at on on those topics and 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 that requires a level of humility of understanding that um we have our blind spots and how would we want to be treated in those situations in which we aren't fully aware of a particular topic or someone's story or something like that is it is it through humiliation or is it through like you know being met where we're at and like guided in that process and i would say that's the latter is something that i would definitely like try i try to lean into more and more through the work that i'm doing and the stories that i try to tell um and i think i would say in part that's kind of um a a part of a, a part of the success that we've had through natives outdoors is just is just taking that humility in that process
0: um that's fantastic what is next for you and your team? Uh, like, what what's the next big initiative or goal that you guys have?
1: You know, this past year and during COVID, we we originally started making apparel because we we saw this challenge of cultural appropriation in the outdoor industry and that, you know, Native people weren't proud of that process. And, you know, there was impacts there. And we quickly discovered in the early days that, you know, Doing apparel is expensive and cost intensive and the rates of success are very low. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the material costs of, you know, buying 10,000 shirts is large and then the environmental impact of that is large. And um, so during, during the pandemic, we shifted to more media and storytelling in part because of the people that we brought on to our team just were really capable and, and talented in that area and we saw that as really our opportunity to give a different um lens of of adventure storytelling and um yeah just just to you know add, add something new to the mix and something familiar but new something familiar and novel and And so we've really leaned into doing that work. And so we're in the next, in the next bit, we're, you know, focusing on more storytelling. And I think honestly, figuring out how we can continue to use media and storytelling to um, impact policy, you know, of course, is a big thing, but also really, I mean, just trying to inspire um, young Native folks to. Spend more time outside, or you know, even just not just native folks, but just more folks broadly, um, about you know our connection to landscape and how spending time outdoors more deeply connects us with that. Um, and I think for a lot of our broader policy discussions, I think a lot would be solved if we just spent more time outside, more time connected to our local ecosystem. Yeah. I think a lot, mm-hmm. lot would make sense. A lot more would make sense, and I think there's an opportunity mm-hmm. to. To, to further that conversation through that so like a lot of the stories we tell try to try to take that angle um and so we're working on that and i think more broadly just trying to build a, a greater platform for indigenous peoples in the outdoor industry because so much of this industry happens near native lands but the outdoor rec industry non-tribal in lands is fairly limited part of that structural yeah. part of that is you know, historical issues, but also part of it is just like the, the um, opening the possibility and creating the possibility and just the imagination that this is possible is definitely something that we've been just simply trying to seed that imagination is like largely what we've been trying to focus on.
0: That's awesome. And you're also very involved with other initiatives that are I would say complementary to what you do at Natives Outdoors um mm-hmm. so I know that you are on the board of the Honald Foundation um mm-hmm. and Alex is someone that I look up to uh like he's, he's a very fascinating human um mm-hmm. how did you get involved with with that and and wh- how do you like to, to also, to people that aren't aware of what the Honold Foundation does, I'll let you describe what they do. But I'm more curious to know, like, how do you see that helping also do you know what you are trying to do with Native Outdoors?
1: Yeah. So the Honold Foundation, um, we've evolved a lot in the past five years, but we do we see solar as the the way to change the world, and we do that through grant making and through storytelling and supporting communities globally on implementing solar in their communities. And, you know, we do that through, of course, our grants, um, but also using the star power of HANAL to sort of elevate these really incredible stories. Um, you know, and, and the sort of way, I, it's it's sort of secured is how I got into that. I, I had been working for the federal government and the Department of Energy, working with native communities, election happened, policies radically changed, And I just figured this was an opportunity for me to do something different. And I started Natives Outdoors and we, we um, uh, uh, went and visited the outdoor retailer show. I think when, when it was in Denver, this was the first year it was there. Um, and yep. I think it was a Black Diamond Happy Hour or something of that sort. And I met the executive director um, at the time. Her name was, her name is Dori Trimble. And she was looking for board members. They had um, Alex and another guy named Mari Birdwell who had been there since the start. And they they were looking out to build a board experience. But one of the challenges is that they didn't, you know, in working in the outdoor space, they didn't have a lot of connection to folks that were working in energy or, um, you know, uh, marginalized communities that they were looking to benefit with solar work. And I had just come out of that. And so, you know, we had a conversation. It's like, yeah, I work in the outdoor world. And this is what I've been doing in the past. And so I was, and I had worked in grant making, um, you know, for a few years prior. So I had a sense of that, of how it happened at the federal side. And so, yeah, they invited me to come on. And I, I was the first board member beyond Alex and Mari, who were the founding members. And, um, you know, what I helped,
0: That's awesome. helped,
1: helped do was just guide, how do you do grant making in communities that um, have historically been under-resourced or don't have the capacity to manage federal grants because you know one of the onerous things of giving money f- from a lot of foundations and from the federal government is that it comes with a ton of reporting and and other work that can sometimes far exceed the work that the money's intended to to address and so yeah we, the red tape, tape is pretty serious. And so we figured, you know, why do we need to burden people with this crazy reporting for $50,000 worth of money? Um, and so what we ended up doing is taking the approach of doing, um, uh, unrestricted grants. So basically we give money to the organization and they, you know, basically fulfill, uh, the terms of the grant that they're supposed to fulfill. Um, but more importantly, what we did was mm-hmm. just we saw this as an oppor- opportunity to invest in groups, organizations, nonprofits, most directly connected to the communities that they were serving. And if we could support them and vet them as an organization and just support them with the money that we give without burdening them for their work, you know, that was, I think the change that we saw was possible with, um, uh, with yeah, like this sort of impactful work in 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 communities and you know the challenge at its core is like we're still you know in many ways we're trying not to recreate the legacies of colonialism and power dynamics and power imbalances between the communities that we're giving to and blah 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 and i think that's something that we're constantly aware of and i think at least in what we've been able to demonstrate so far is is just when you invest in people and organizations the rest will follow um and I think just having trust mm-hmm. in, in those communities agree. That, that they they have, they know what's best for themselves. So why not empower them to do it?
0: I love that. Um, and working alongside Alex, as I'm sure you've had a couple opportunities to at this point uh, in person, have, have you learned anything from being around someone with that, like different of a life view, I believe. Yeah. I mean, we definitely live, uh, yeah have
1: lived very different lives and it's just you know it's like we've kind of come to the same sort of work from very different um angles you know i think um mm. you know i i i think that's that's it's it's admirable what he he does and how much of his annual income you know that he gives to the foundation and and it's his way of of trying to give back and do good in the world and i think um you know i think it's to to give at the level that he does, I mean, it's in the amount of his percentage of his income that he does. It's it is I think something that we should all strive for if we reach that level of success. Um, and Absolutely. you know, it's more it's somewhere up to like a third of his income. I think it goes to the foundation, but it's huge, you know. And I think, um, to see that. Personal commitment to that large of a goal. I mean, it really then is reflected in, you know, the people that then donate, um, you know, when they see that level of commitment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, folks say that Alex is fairly direct and doesn't have a filter, but I appreciate that because in in Navajo culture, there's, you know, in Navajo language, like,
0: I love it. Yeah. there's,
1: There's no, there's no, um, you know, in English, we can kind of dance around topics or sort of talk about things indirectly in Nabo, It's just culturally and linguistically people say how they feel and that's what it is. And, and, you know, I think that's been one of the things yeah. that's just been really, um, uh, <laughs> I think refreshing, uh, just to, you know, have that clarity. I think one of the funniest moments that I had is we were at a board meeting and at everyone in the board meetings will go, we'll spend a day outside and go climbing for our, our in-person board meetings and we were at Red Rocks at one point. And, you know, I was trying to do this work on this five, nine plus, five, 10 minus thing. And I was like pretty psyched out. And, you know, I climb occasionally uh, and I remember just chalking up at the bottom and he just, Alex looked at me. He's like, you know, the chalk isn't what's going to be the decisive factor about whether you get up this or not. And <laughs> And uh, I love that you know, so much. It was just so deadpan, and I was like, you know what, Alex, you're right, but you're an asshole. <laughs> you're right, but you're an asshole. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was and a it, funny moment. I, I was
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and for people that don't aren't aware of climbing terms, like a, a nine, ten plus or minus in that range is a very difficult bouldering problem for the average person. And for someone like Alex, it's what he could probably do without even thinking about it on the average day, right? Because he is a superhuman when it comes to rock climbing. Um, totally.
1: Yeah, I was. Fast, I, I climbed that fast. route. That route on a rope, and he climbed the harder route to the left of it without a rope. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. And probably what, like two minutes, three minutes, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was impressive. Yeah. Um, to anyone who hasn't watched the movie Free Solo, uh, directed by Jimmy Chin and Chai Chiavaccarelli, I'll link it below. Um, but that's uh, it'll it it'll probably change the way you view human endeavor and or what is actually possible. It's a fascinating documentary. Um, yeah. But he's a he's a cool dude. Um. So kind of bringing it back to storytelling and. Uh, your initial love for like filmmaking and photography and storytelling. When is the first time you picked up a camera? Oh,
1: um, you know, I, I probably when I was young, my mom uh, had done landscape and birding photography when I was a child. Um, And she Mm -hmm. made, had a cover of one magazine i think it was one of the new mexico tourism magazine or something of that sort and um you know it was always something she did as a hobby but i i still have her i have her camera still and um uh, you know so i i had that exposure from a young age um you know my mom did other things she had another job but it was like a hobby of hers and um but i think for myself I started picking up photography at the end of, of college. Um, (laughs) you know, at the time I was into cars, so I was like taking like motorsports photography and, um, yeah, spending time at racetracks and stuff like that. And, you know, it was fun. It was different, very different. And, you know, eventually when I went to grad school, I had to like sell that camera and, and do other things. And, um, uh, but I eventually came back to it, uh, when i moved to colorado and just spending a lot of the time a lot of time in mountains and just seeing these incredible landscapes um i just wanted a better way to capture it than on my phone because at that point you know camera phones were good but not like great and i think i saw the Mm -hmm. you know opportunity and just yeah having a different way to to keep myself occupied um I yeah, so I started doing that, and then I eventually started doing more filmmaking along with the help of some of my good friends that were already filmmakers on like whichget and um other projects and i and I think that that um sort of use of technology you know sort of scratched the itch of my engineer brain, but also like having that um that sense of of desire to like capture the natural world was that sort of other experience of you know as my grandfather referenced of like spending time outdoors and like um, in that classroom, it was like an opportunity to learn of like, how do you, you know, taking photos of nature is challenging and um, you know, it takes a lot of work and, uh, and I, I saw it as a challenge. I saw it as something to just um, feel uh, incredibly uh, green and like a noob and you know, sort of feel that, like in that element of being uncomfortable, like of, of learning something new. Um, that I think I have I I really enjoy that that. I really enjoy that space of being in there and I think that with photography and combining the photography with other outdoor sports whether that's cycling or skiing just felt like a uh added to that challenge so I I would say that in large part it was driven by that that sense of of feeling like I was learning um and having that desire to learn I
0: love that and so do you remember the first like proper film or project uh that i guess was public that you made
1: yeah honestly welcome to was my first um my first big film that's amazing yeah and you know it's (laughs) as i've soon learned not all films make it into multiple festivals (laughs) uh yeah and they don't go on tour and they don't always result in testimonies to congress and so i think that kind of distorted the possibilities of like You know, I was like, oh, this doesn't always happen. But, you know, that was a that was a that was a really great experience of just seeing how a film is made and like kind of seeing it from concept to execution. Um, And yeah, and then, of course, we worked on Spirit of the Peaks with Natives Outdoors, and that was led by, again, Greg Balkin, who... uh, helped direct this, and Connor Ryan, and you know, I supported in a in an executive producer role, and just basically connecting the dots with the Ute tribe on that film. You know, this film is a ski film that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, telling the story of the Ute people and their connection to the San Juan Mountains in southwestern Colorado. It's a place that you know I consider home. Oh, it's a place I love spending time in. Um, but you know, kind of going into depth about their connection to water and their connection to the place and telling you through the lens of a native skier in the Connor. And, um, uh, you know, part of that was, uh, yeah. I had built relationships with the Ute tribe prior. And so building that and like helping make, bring that to life in the, the, the different ways was really fun. And, um, of course, like, you know, going to places like the Arctic refuge and taking the camera has just been, I think just really opened up the possibility to, um, uh, yeah, just to like, bring life to the written storytelling that I've done a lot of. Um, And I think just adds a whole new layer of trying to think about how the photos will fit together with the story and vice versa is just, I, I, I love that challenge and I love, you know, um, being able to guide people through an experience or like sort of a story or an adventure, um, you know, through my lens, but also leaving the room for possibility on their end to think about what what what's there, what's possible. What you know, I think that imaginative side is really fun.
0: Agreed. Yeah, I think it's something that to, to people out there that maybe be struggling with finding that creative pursuit, I'm one of the people that believes that everyone could, can, and should be creative. Uh, you sort of kind of find what that pursuit is, and I love something you said about connecting like the images or the motion with the story you're trying to tell. And, and that, that art of kind of being that collector or that arbor, arbor like I guess the word I'm looking for is like uh presenter or the person that's deciding what goes on display, I think is such a fun, fun way of, you know, establishing creative pursuit. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, it really is. And so and- with that, when, when you're when you're going through the process of making these films um is there a certain process that you like to follow uh because like i've talked to some filmmakers before and they have like a very routine process they follow with every single piece but with you i kind of get this air that you kind of follow your gut and move through it with what you think needs to exist like is there any process that you follow or is it more like the latter
1: Um, you know, I think one of them is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's often a collective process of working with, um, other creatives that have very different trainings and skill sets than I do. And, and I think that, um, you know, what that's often meant is just, uh, uh, I'm like, I'm really good at the big picture and sort of larger concepting of the story if you know, if there's a thread to be sort of pulled on, you know. Of course, we've done a whole host of different kinds of stories, but you know, kind of tying in larger themes and you know, connecting it to various different um, different threads. I think is is kind of where I'm really good at. And and, I, and then I think in terms of like the execution on the ground, you know, that's where I work with other folks because I'm not as capable as like say our our filmmaker Isaiah in like the visual component of the story. And I think one of the things is like, there are elements that I can contribute to that conversation um, and support with, but, you know, in many parts, it's just, um, it's like, he'll bring a story to life that I have concepted, or, you know, he has a story idea and I help build it out and then he'll help, you know, basically lead the visual component of that. And I think, you know, what I'm really good at, at least in is, you know, having that awareness and that humility that, you know, like, I have a training in certain things about, you know, understanding environmental issues, connected to connected ecosystem of indigenous issues, but I don't know everything within that. And I think it's just like having that willingness to learn through the process of um, here's an area I have a question about. Here's the area that I'm not fully capable of. Who does have that experience and that expertise is generally where we try to, where we try to land um, in doing those stories. So we've done like, you know, uh, artist profiles and, you know, other sorts of commercial work that has a very deep storytelling element that, you know, otherwise for commercial media can feel very flat, um, and not very deep. And I think one of the things that we really tried to do, at least in like storytelling around native artists has been, you know, going into the depth of, of, you know, the history and the culture and the things that exist there. And, um, you know, how do we bring that to life in a way that like is something the community can be proud of and, and something that we are too, um, so that's that's generally where I try to try to land. The other is that if it's if it's a topic that I'm not as familiar with, or even one that I am, I just try to read a lot. I try to read as much as I can um, about the topic from multiple perspectives. Um, so right now we're working on a short film about place naming and the current you know administration's effort to address uh, offensive place names on public lands. Um, and and what we, you know, on its surface is like, well, this is, you know, kind of falling into the realm of, you know, of symbolic gestures to like try to right the wrongs of past, of, of past injustices, which is true. And it's like an important thing to highlight, but I think that's like the surface. And I think the more deeper conversation that we've been diving yeah. into there is just how different, um, like the role of place naming and how different it is across cultures. Um, and the sort of getting into the nooks and crannies of that particular thing has been really, um, insightful. So I would say that's the other, the other component is just trying to understand what I know and what I don't know, and where are the opportunities to kind of fill in those gaps. And I think as I read more, it becomes, you know, you, you begin to learn more deeply how much you don't know about the world. And I think that having that humility in that that process is important, but also, I think also allows the creation of, of stories that are more authentic and I think can, um, yeah, just like help people think, like think more broadly and like have questions and curiosity about the world instead of just simply walking away with, uh, you know, this was the call to action for the film. This was the, you know, the to-dos and then, you know, people go and do yeah. it and then feel good about themselves and then move on to the next. And it's like, is there a way in which, these stories can, um, yeah, just have people think more broadly about the world, have curiosity about the world, and then come to their own decision about whatever action they take, if there is a call to action. Um, But I think just having that sort of sense of curiosity of of the world is really what I try to leave, the end goal of really what I try to leave folks with.
0: I love that. That's a really uh, strong sentiment and quite a good narrative to have uh from your own perspective to really you know, push that out and so hats off to you for uh diving deeper on that um i'm gonna jump into uh like a, a set of rapid fire questions um sure. you can answer these in as many or few words as you'd like um so i'm gonna start off with the most cliche one <laughs> but i think it's one that you'd actually enjoy uh which is If you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family, uh, what problem would you try and solve?
1: A billion. I was just, uh, I think earlier this week, I was, you know, about a third of Navajo homes don't have access to running water or electricity. That would definitely be one. Mm -hmm. Um, But that that price tag, the last I checked, was about $44 billion. So
0: uh maybe yeah. get some
1: match funds from the government but um i think that would be top on the list for sure
0: and is it so expensive 44 billion because the infrastructure just doesn't exist they'd have to build existing pump stations and all the lines for water and electricity and make sure there are systems in place for the sewage that comes from having that level of water is that basically why
1: yeah, and it's just the the sort of settlement patterns of Navajo communities is very dispersed. So you don't have like population hubs. So most mm. of the folks are very living miles apart from each other. Um, so you have to go to distributed yeah. options. So it just it drives up the cost a lot.
0: For sure, uh, the the sad thing is you look at where this government decides to spend some money, and forty four billion is something that you know some. It It sounds like a lot to the average person. It is a hell of a lot of money. But to someone like the U.S. federal government, I mean, that's, you know, deciding to cut off that much towards other programs is is highly doable and capable. But we won't turn this into a massive political discussion. I promise. <laughs> um, it, is, it is kind of eye-opening when you hear things like that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: You know, um, is there a story that your family, your parents like to tell about you?
1: oh man uh i think that i'm a rebel rouser i i think they like to, you know i question authority <laughs> they question authority a lot so working in the government was not a
0: not a good fit for sure
1: <laughs> not I pay, not, I would, not pay,
0: I would pay money to see that
1: <laughs> yeah not in a not in a not in a you know a rebel without a cause, but you know you know really questioning whether authority is legitimate or not is something that I definitely uh, have the tendency to do. And so they have many yeah. stories about you know <laughs> me in school in the in the different
0: ways in which that came out. That's awesome. Um, is 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 there something you believe that most people don't? That's a good follow up question. Oh,
1: I. I don't know. That's a tough one. I, just, I, it's. I, I would say, I. I would say a big one is you know I. I it sounds cliche, but I, I believe most people are inherently good and in working in you know most people want to. Live a happy life and feel content, and you know, you know tr- that's that's what motivates a lot of people. And granted, that you know, the way that expresses itself can be a multitude of reasons. And I I think that's uh that's something that I think right now, um, in our political climate, g- given how divisive it is, it's it's really hard to kind of see people that are, have different viewpoints than our own being motivated by similar reasons as ourselves. And I think that's a big one. Um, I think the other, the other part maybe similar and related is just, uh, you know, I think, I think there's a, we don't, I don't think that we, we don't have a choice in the lives that we're born into or the history that we inherit. Like, and I think that, you know, especially as a, mixed person like you know I carry the heaviness of being native and then also the sort of guilt of like being coming from a society that's benefited from our our repression and uh, but you know I I think one of the things sort of related to that first idea of the inherent goodness of people is that I think we have our, our real choice in that history is what we do when we learn about the past and like where we sit within as you know sort of downstream from that history is like do we want to continue doing that i think that's uh, you know some folks in my community in the native community think that i'm just giving a pass to white folks for like all this past injustice but you know i think in the same realm it's like we don't have a we don't have a choice like the lives that we're born into and i think you know mm-hmm. i think i think having giving people the autonomy and saying you have the capability to make a decision about what the future can be, I think really is, that's where I I tend to, that's where my judgment will start to come to bear is depending on what happens when those things are learned. Because, you know, we all have a lot of ignorance about the world around us. We don't know what the person across from us has been going through or, you know, people don't know our stories. And I think that's kind of having that humility that, you know, everyone has their own story and their own reasons for being. And that that's a huge i i think that's where us just is trying to be humble about what we don't know and i think that's something that in our online context right now it's easy to you know grandstand and you know take strong positions on issues and condemn people for yeah. doing things we don't and i don't
0: think that's helpful <laughs> so that's
1: i don't know maybe maybe a lot of people agree but i know, I know there's, there's folks that don't
0: Unfortunately, that's where the rest of the audio cuts out from a recording perspective. I'll make sure I get Len back on the podcast for a proper round two. You can find Len online at Len Sefer, That's L-E-N-N-E-C-E-F-E-R. He is very active on social media. And as always, you can find me online at Rob Hockenkloss or Rob is Lost. I hope you all. Have a fantastic rest of
1: your day.